Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Bienvenidos a Getting Curious. If you don't speak Spanish, that means welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Benes, and every two weeks, I sit down for a 30-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, what in the F is up with the opioid crisis? With Dr. Chris Evans. So, uh, Dr. Chris Evans, you are a doctor. You are a researcher extraordinaire on all things opioid. Reading your uh, website is, I should have graduated college just for reading it. Because it's long and it's smart. You're, you're smarty pants. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Oh, well, I would. So I'll say it about you, whether you like it or yeah. not. Well, unless you really don't like it, then I'll respect your boundaries. Okay. Um, so tell my listeners about a little bit about you and uh, your research and your line of work. Okay. So um, I come from England, and I started my opiate research in England. And uh, that was just the time that endogenous opioids had been discovered, the enkephalins, endorphins, you know, those things which... 
Make you feel happy when you run and do those kind of things. Um, so I was there right at the beginning. And then I came to America in 1980 and I went to Stanford. And there we um, found some more endogenous opioids. There's about 20 or 30 of them in the brain. Endogenous. Endogenous means in the brain, within the brain. Got it. Not androgynous, which <laughs> no, is what I think of. <laughs> Different I'm like, word. I'm like, great. So I'm like, these genes are really, they are, they are uh, fucking the binary. Uh, they are doing what they want to do in the brain. But now yeah. I understand it. it's, in, uh, it's endogenous. Endogenous. Got it. Yeah, endogenous. Um, so, and then, so, and then day to day though, you, you're the, you're, I can't say all these words in a sentence without saying it wrong. So will you just take the wheel for me? You're the C-C-C. Do you say it? Okay. I I direct a center on neuropharmacology at UCLA, and I direct an NIH center, which has now been funded for 30 years, actually, on um, opiates. Which What's that that cute acronym? CASORDA. CASORDA, Center for Study of Opiate. Center for the Study of Opiate. Opioids and Opi- drugs of abuse. Okay, you guys. So I want you to put a pin in that. This, <laughs> this holds a special place in my heart because my stepdad, RIP, uh, he'd been sober for 28 years when he died. So I grew up like coloring, coloring books like outside of 12-step meetings in the middle of America, like waiting for him to be done. So I, I grew up in a house of recovery. I grew up around recovery. I grew up around a lot of addicts um, that, you know, my stepdad would sponsor. And so I am, the fact that this, that the NIH, which if you guys don't know, that's the National Institute of Health. That's the, that's like in the UK. The fact that their eyes have been on this and that this has like been something that that has been public or has been funded by the government since 1980, I think is super amazing. And I want to put a pin in that for later. So remember that kids. All right. So opioids, it's a big problem. We talked about it in the presidential debate problem. We see it on the news. Uh, I, you know, one of the articles that sticks out in my head is this, I believe it was NPR, but it could have been someone else. But basically this, this guy in Ohio who was a, he's a, a coroner and they're having to rent out storage spaces and like cooling places to put the corpses because people are dying so fast from overdoses there. They literally don't have enough time and personnel to like deal with the bodies. And so it is, this is like a really burgeoning problem. It's happening. So what, what, what's an opioid like legal versus illegal? Like what are the biggest ones? What are the players on the block? Okay. So an opioid is anything which sees an opiate receptor in the brain, right? And there are many different types. The opiates that you probably most aware of, heroin, uh, oxycodone, the prescription opiates, and um, fentanyl. So there's the natural opioids, which are morphine, codeine, and then there's derivatives of these, which are heroin, which is, you know, a much more potent version of morphine. And then there's uh, derivatives of some of the precursors of those. So that they're made from um, a compound called Thebane in the opium poppy. They're derivatized to form oxycodone, hydrocodone, <clears throat> and these are the major um, therapeutic drugs which are carted around. So, so in general, uh, you know, opioids that are naturally occurring are like that the poppy seed, or like you get it from the poppy, and then you get it from what was that other one? Thebane. Thebane. And so from those two naturally occurring things, you can make the heroin, you can make all of the, the, the oxy, the fentanyl. No, not the fentanyl. No, not the fentanyl. What's she come from? The fentanyl is a, is a synthetic. Opioid. So it's a man-made. Um, thing. It's a man-made. Well, it's uh, yeah. It's based on a different structure, 
but it's an incredibly potent uh, fentanyl analogs are the big problem these days. Well, there was this lady I saw on this A&E, like True Life, I'm an Addict, and she was this like fierce actress, but she got addicted to fentanyl lollipops and, and, um, the, and the skin patches, and all of her teeth fell out, and it was like totally crazy what happened to her. That's my only experience with fentanyl, but it looks like a bad yeah. per- like a bad thing that I don't want to. I don't even want to try her. <laughs> you don't want to try fentanyl. No, because no. like I can't even put down a bag of powdered donuts, so I don't even want to uh, know what uh, I would look like having been exposed to fentanyl. So, but basically, the legal the legal ones are the big players that on the legal side would be like fentanyl, oxycotton. Hydrocodone. Hydrocodone. Percocet. Perco- and- yes, Percocet. That, that, yes. Uh, uh, everyone's Vic- talk- Vicodin. And everyone's talking about Percocet these days. Every song you hear, every rap song you hear, Percocet. Set, Percocet. Always yeah. a Percocet. And then, uh, okay, so the, okay, got it. So, and then what do they do to the brain? Like the, like, like, cause I mean, even though some are legal and some are illegal, like, aren't they essentially doing the same things? Yes. They, they, they bind to opiate receptors, which are proteins, which are in certain neurons in the brain and they stop those neurons working. So that's why they're so good for pain because they stop, they're in the pain pathways and they stop the pain pathways, you know, producing their pain in the brain. So, um, that's how they work. And, um, but you might ask why they're so addictive because they actually release dopamine and and have effects on um, they have positive effects you know they have euphoric effects and they cause a big release of dopamine. So let's say I've got like a chronic back injury from like misuse overuse injuries because like I don't know how to engage my fucking shoulders and so my middle back is always all messed up and maybe yeah. I was like doing jackhammer stuff all the time so my middle back's all messed up so basically what you're saying is that in, normally if you have an injury like those little nerve things are gonna like tell your brain and your spinal cord that you're in pain like yeah, that's right. the pain that you feel and then feel you know like tightness around the muscles from it so you have sickness behavior so you go and you you defend yourself yeah, like your shoulders and, yeah, are coming yeah, forward yeah. and you're like not feeling great. And so then basically what the opioid does and why it's so powerful is, is it, it basically, it like, it is first of all stopping that chain reaction. So it's stopping yep. your nerves from being able to like be able to communicate that pain to your brain and your spinal cord. Right. And then I think the other part of what you just said was is not only does it stop that communication, but it also can induce feelings of euphoria and other stuff because like That's other right. chemicals get made when you induce those yes. things. Got it. So then based off of like the amount that you consume and how often you consume it, like determines like how much of these endorphins get made and like how good you feel when you do it. Is that true? Well, well, no, you aren't actually releasing the endorphins. You're tricking the endorphin system. So you're binding straight to those receptors. Yeah, so, so the endorphins are, us- are, are the natural ligands for those receptors, right? Mm-hmm. So they normally activate the opiate receptors. But with, um, but like you, in normal you, natural amounts, like because if you natural like, amounts, yeah, and at specific places in the brain. But what what you're doing with uh, when you inject an opiate or you 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 swallow, swallow an one. opiate, then you're activating all of the opiate receptors all at once, right? In your brain. In your brain. And then once and those periphery as well, because you get constipation, right? That's one of the things you get with uh, opiates. Terrible constipation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> and and actually, because like I I love weed, and I'm like such a big advocate of it. Yeah. And like my mom. <clears throat> Had a really oh god I don't know if I should talk about this. <laughs> well, I'm going to. Um, so my mom had really bad cancer, and she was like on all these like anti anxiety things because like when you get cancer, you, they put you on Ativan because you're stressed out that you have cancer, and then she was also on like some other shit to go to sleep. I don't know if it was Xanax or 
whatever. Uh, benzo, but she, benzo. But she was like on a bunch of shit. And I was like, mom, you can't poop. You're miserable. And let me tell you something. She was miserable. So I was like, how about let's just sit together and do some of these like weed suckers. I've always, you know, been dying to smoke with you forever. I know you're not about it, but let's just suck some of this weed candy. And it totally worked so well. She could poo again. It doesn't have the half-life. It was like much easier on her body. She didn't have like the hangovers. It was so much better. Until... I sent her a hash oil pill and that sent her over the moon and she had a really bad reaction and she was like a little paranoid. Yep, yeah, she was hallucinating those like dementors yeah. from a Harry Potter movie and her lips yeah. turned purple and like my brother thought I was like trying to kill her and I was like give her some fucking orange juice she'll be fine but I digress. So anyway. Yeah. Um but basically so why do people get so addicted to opioids? Like, why is it so pervasive? And, like, what's changed in the last 10 years that wasn't going on 30, 40 years ago? I mean, opiate addiction's been going on forever, right? I mean, there's been a heroin addictions for a long, long time. In fact, actually, heroin was um, created as a non-addictive morphine. Bayer did this in the was 1906 or something like that. They, they made uh, heroin. And it was made and it was touted as a non-addictive opiate. So heroin was made as a non-addictive opiate. <laughs> yeah, originally, yeah. How and then, but then everyone yeah, got pretty super ironic. To pretty it. ironic. But so yeah. then everyone got super addicted to it. And then what happened? Well, then they took it off the market, right? They realized. So it was so, like so. It was so kind of like it's kind of like oxycontin, right? They touted it as a non-addictive opioid drug by the you know the pharmaceutical companies. And when they found out it was, then they have to start Because it's like monitoring. literally heroin's like second cousin, like Oxycontin, yes. right? Very, very similar, yeah. Right. So basically one thing is that I hear you saying is that like when I see this increase in coverage of the opioid crisis on the news and stuff, it's not so much that it's a new news story. It's just maybe making its way more into like middle class, middle America. So people are talking about it more. Well, I think it's a bit more complicated. I mean, you know, the during the late 1900s and early 2000s, there's been um, there was a, a big drive to treat pain because, I mean, chronic pain and, and pain is, is, is a terrible disease as well in itself. And so the prescriptions on, for opiates went skyrocketing and OxyContin was one of these. And so there's been much more exposure to opiates. You know, I mean, before there was much less exposure. Maybe you got opiates when you had uh, your teeth out or when you, um, you know, had a little small operation. But it was, they were very restricted. But then with the changes in, in the attitudes treating of pain, opiates became much more prescribed. And so many more people got exposed. So when did, and then you were saying that you had kind of started your research in this when when some of these things first got discovered. So like when did Oxy first come on the market? Um, maybe 2000 around, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. What exactly were people prescribing before that? Well, they, they, in the way of like a pill. Vicodin, Percocet was still. That um, was around before that. I think so. Yeah. I think oxycodone was a little, or oxycontin certainly was a little later. So, you know, it's kind of like how they were like smoke cigarettes to have not as fat babies in the 20s to ladies. So if you've got fibromyalgia or some right. like, you know, random widespread, you know, chronic pain thing, or you got your leg crushed in some drywall accident 20 years ago and it's never been the same since, like you got some long standing chronic pain issue. Right. Who decided that it was like appropriate to prescribe this person a Percocet or a Oxycontin that they're going to become dependent upon? Because isn't it widely accepted that if you're going to 
like use it to treat pain in a short term way, you could probably end up needing to use it in a long term way. Yeah, I mean, uh, opiates are very good um, analgesics. They're very good for treating pain. And, you know, there's a lot of people who take their opiates and don't get addicted. Okay, so there's certain susceptibilities. And in my view, the most important susceptibilities are um, the comorbidities with anxiety and depression. And those are the people who seem to be very susceptible to becoming addicted. So, so if you have a predisposition prior to your surgery or your injury to being depressed or anxious and then you get prescribed opioids, you have a higher chance of becoming addicted You've, in your experience? That's 100%. Okay, got it. So – but is, has there never been like any national uh, guidelines for – like who makes rules for how doctors prescribe stuff? <laughs> who makes – yeah. Is there well, like the FDA? Like well, do they, I, or the I, CDC? I, there, there isn't. I mean there are now becoming much more um, – you know, physicians becoming much more knowledgeable about the comorbidities with anxiety and depression so that they are now on the lookout for um, – susceptibility to becoming addicted. So there's now a more intelligent system being put into place and physicians are being taught this, right? So they, they but they, they, you know, before the, 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 the companies who were selling these drugs were, were touting them as having very low probability of addiction. Until when? Well, I think until the crisis started emerging, really, then, and then the companies really couldn't, couldn't keep up this. Uh, so to you and in general, like in our modern lex or in this, you know, contemporary lexicon, like when did the air quote crisis start? I think it started like, um, well, if you look at the uh, incidents, it's sort of the mid, you know, 2004, 2005, it starts going up. But, the, it, you know, in the last couple of years, it's gone crazy. So, I mean, if you look at um, even between 2010 and last year, the incidence has gone up you know, to three or fourfold. So now we're, now we're looking at about 33,000, 34,000 um, people dying each year from just opiate, opiate abuse. 30,000 dying a year just from opiate abuse. And plus. plus. So, and actually, if you look in the last year, all of the um, mortalities for, from all drugs of abuse are going up, which is oh. horrible, horribly. So um, this one boy who I used to work with had like chronic back pain. And I remember um, he had this doctor who he could always just be like, oh, my back hurts. And he could get yeah, like, you know, a yeah, couple months yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And then he would like skip around and he would kind of would ask around the salon. Doctor shopping. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like who they, who they could go to. So, yeah. but then he found this one guy who like he never had to leave from. So like who catches that guy? Like who catches the doctor who's just willy nilly prescribing stuff to anyone who wants it? Like do those people get caught? Is there punishments for them? Like they, is it a thing? They do get caught. And um, they do get away with things as well. So I mean, there it's it's a, uh, I mean, doctors are in a very very um, difficult position because they know they want to treat their pain, and you know some doctors obviously are uh, you know have been caught abusing their position. You know, and side note, and I don't know how you feel about this, but like I have a bunch of like surgeon cousins. Like I have these two yeah. cousins that are surgeons, and this my one cousin was telling me about. Like, like, because like my, my big toe got smashed, and like my big, it was this whole thing, and I like wouldn't take any pills because I was like, I'll just like smoke a little bit of weed at night. I'm taking Advil, like I can't because I was like doing two TV shows at the time. I was hosting all this stuff, and I was like, I can't be funny and host and like take on information on pills. So right. I was like, I'm just like not yeah. going to do it, which somehow led to people with bald spots 
I don't know why, but it did. And then I was like, oh, well, if you put castor oil on it, like it regrows hair. Like I've always told people that like when they get like when their eyebrows are thin, like put castor oil on it and I've seen it work. And my cousin was like, show me a control study where like it shows that castor oil like regrows hair and I'll believe you. But until such a time, like that's a wives tale. And I was like, you kind of suck for never believing in Eastern medicine, you know, like she'll never take anything like so same as like my grandma when she had COPD. I was like, you should stop drinking so much milk and cheese all the time. If you can't breathe, it's making extra music or mucus. It's like like an ancient Chinese thing. But she was like, I asked my doctor about it at Mayo and he said that that's like, you know, I just feel that there's like some truth and balance in like Western medicine meeting Eastern medicine. And like, if you have chronic pain, take your ass to yoga or Go sit in the goddamn sauna for 20 minutes. You know what I mean? You yeah. don't have to take a pill every time go you have a Go for a massage. And, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. there is just a way that you can meet in the middle. Like, not to be in a soapbox, but I just – what do you think about that? Actually, I'm a proponent of Eastern Western medicine. You are? Yeah, I am indeed. Good for you. <laughs> and I'm a proponent of therapy as opposed to – I love to- <laughs> therapy. I've been in it since I was, like, five. I live for but, it. Uh, but I work on neuropharmacology, so – But then, oh, oh yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cute. So. so sometimes you kind of have to, like, make do good within the beast so that you can make things better. You not have to, to call, understand the beast. Understand the beast. Yes, not to call your industry a beast, but, I, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I mean, whatever. You guys, <laughs> we've been chatting for 15 minutes. Uh, I got to get it together. Uh, listen to this cute little break, and then we'll be back uh, with more with Dr. Chris Evans and more Getting Curious right after this. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness, and I, my brain is on 10 right now. It's in fuego. It's lit. I'm learning so much stuff with Dr. Chris Evans. You know, so that was kind of covering, you know, the relationship of, like, doctors to opioids and their patients and how they're in a difficult position. But then what about the other side of opioids with, you know, like, street opiates? Like, like street drug? And, and why has that explosion also? Because, well, I mean, I guess it kind of... Well, you tell me, but I think I have an idea. Can I tell you what my idea is and then you tell me if it's yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you, you, you start. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so because the addiction crisis, because opiate crisis has gotten so much you know, more intensive in the mid-2000s to now, once those prescriptions run out or they're done doctor shopping and they can't find someone to fill it anymore, they have to turn to like an easier, faster, more readily available way to get their drugs, which is like a street drug. That's right. Okay. That happens. And... Uh, and unfortunately, an, uh, another route to addiction is people leaving their drugs in the medicine cabinet and kids finding them and using them. And often drugs are given to by friends. You know, you, people get drugs from friends because they haven't finished their prescriptions. So there's a, the, the, there's a lot of drugs starting because of... of um, illicit ways, but not just getting off the streets, friends. Right. And family. Right. You know, giving them drugs. And your guard is also kind of down at that point because you are with like a friend or family. Yep. It's not like you're in like a seedy back alley or, you know, it seems very above water or like above board. And they're prescribed medications, so people think they're safe. Right. But then, but is it this, concurrently, is this prescription, um, you know, opioid crisis has exploded. Has street drugs and heroin overdoses increased as well? Oh, and, oh, like, yeah. and like fentanyls and, and Enormously. Other- I mean, the, the heroin overdoses have gone up many, many fold in the, in the last like uh, five, 10 years. Yeah. And I mean, even if you think of like, you know, Hollywood people like Philip Seymour Hoffman, that was a heroin overdose, I believe. Uh, I think that Heath Ledger was a opioid because it was like a mixture of all sorts of drugs. Um, yeah. It, it, oh, and, and, um, that gorgeous uh, man from Glee, 
Chris Evans, I believe his name was. <laughs> That's me. Uh, oh, no, no. Yeah, I'm still alive. Me. Jesus Christ <laughs> loves us. I'm going to step myself in the face with that. What was his name? That boy, whatever, he's leaving yeah, Michelle's yeah, ex-boyfriend. Your name you. is Chris Evans written right in front of me, yeah. which is right here. I'm going to circle it and put a heart around it because you're alive. Um, <laughs> yes, Corey Monteith. It was a C. So yeah. uh, we're just going to delete that part. No, we're going to keep it in. We're real people doing real things. So, so concurrently, the illegal... The, the illegal and illicit, because you said illicit with prescription drugs. Yeah. So that so even though it's legal, air quote, it can still be illicit. If yeah, you're take, yeah. So it's I really mean, illicit if you're taking it. If it's a legal drug, but you're taking it when you're not supposed to be, it's illicit. Yes, that's right. And and the other problem is that uh, that some drugs like fentanyl are being made outside of the country, often in Mexico or in um, China, imported, and then put into other drugs. Sometimes even drugs such as cocaine, and they're, they're spiking lots of drugs with these fentanyl derivatives. And this is really screwing up the system because now you've got— What about like in Mali? Are they putting that in Mali? Because— uh, Not that I ever do that because, like, I've never done that. But I don't want fentanyl in the Molly. <laughs> that's one of the problems when you buy Because you don't know what it is. You don't know what the heck you're getting. I that's know. a big problem. It really is. Um, Which is why, if Donald Trump was such a cute businessman, <laughs> why don't they do that thing that the Vincenti Fox wanted to do that one time? And they should just, like, make them so that people won't die from them and then tax it. And then we could have, like, gorgeous money and gorgeous highways and gorgeous bridges and gorgeous roads. And then we wouldn't have Molly spiked with fentanyl. Because who wants fentanyl with Molly in it? Or their cocaine, for that matter? That's, that's the big problem with illicit. And a lot of people taking illicit drugs is that you don't know what you're getting. So it's then, a big problem, even with marijuana. I mean, well, you that's know, not completely true here because <laughs> it is lean illegal and it is like it's it's getting there. And, and actually, having it under governmental control means you know the pesticides are not going to be so bad. It means that and you, then, know, and you don't know like, what you're getting, and you won't have these like rogue THC strains that are like yeah, seven yeah, thousand, thousand times, times stronger, stronger that yeah. are going to like ruin and fry yeah. your brain if you have yeah, it when you're fourteen. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean that's important. You know, I, I 100% agree. And another thing is, too, like, when I used marijuana, like, not knowing the differences between indicas and sativas and hybrids mm-hmm. and how those strains affected me because, you know, this isn't that podcast. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> but I'm just saying that when you know what's in the drug and, like, yeah, what you're really using it yeah. for, it makes such a big difference, which yeah. was the yeah. bottom line. So why is it that people are getting so dependent on, you know, illicit or legal, whatever way, opioids versus, like, you know, alcohol or, like, what? why is it so addictive versus, like, other drugs? Well, alcohol is very addictive. I mean, there's a— Not to, s- not to take anything away from that because uh, it is. And so is smoking. I mean, But you're not seeing—but you're not seeing, you know, like, 80% increases in people dying from alcohol no, overdoses. No, and, no, no, no. Cigar- that, that always takes a long time, right? And—but— um, the trouble with opiates is that um, opiates are very, very good antidepressants and anxiolytics, right? Anti-what? Anxiolytics. So they, they prevent anxiety. Mm. Is Ativan uh, an opioid? Uh, no. No, well, that's I love that benzo. <laughs> Whatever that is, she's great too, but, but I digress. No, you have benzos, alcohol, and uh, opiates of, uh, are sort of sedative type. Drugs, so right? Ativan is a benzo. Yeah, I think so. I uh-huh. think it's a benzo if I remember correctly. Yeah, you can yeah. like the world can literally be like crumbling around you as we speak. Like we could be getting taken over by like Russia right now. And if you had an Ativan, you'd be like, yeah, it'd be okay. But yeah. you know what? I feel great. <laughs> I just need to make some cookies. But but the problem with all of these drugs is that when you go off them, right? When you go off alcohol, 
you get anxious. When you go off benzos, you get anxious. When you go off opiates, you get very anxious. And, you know, the withdrawal state. So the brain's changed by taking that opiate again and again and again. So the brain changes. So when you go off the drug, you get very anxious. And the only way of dealing with that is to take the drug again. So is you, the withdrawal always correspondent to how often and how much of the drug you used? It, it's it's correlated. Um, you know, people are going to have different extents. And you can't just look at the physical withdrawal. You know, there's shakes when people come off their opiates or they, um, and the um, initial time because withdrawal can take a long time. The brain can take a long time to re-equilibrate to what it was before one took the drugs. Well, worst case scenario, like how, like what's like the longest? And is there even a way to measure it if it ever gets all the way back to normal? Yes, that's one of the problems. You know, some of the symptoms in- incubate so that there's a depressive state which can sort of start incubating and come on after a week or so. And there's the initial ones which, you know, the shakes which go away very fast. So there's probably lots of different phases of reestablishing normality in the brain. Some like the memories, are never going to go away. So if you associate your drug with the antidepressant effects, with it taking away anxiety, that could be there forever. So whenever you get anxious, what are you going to do? You're going to crave your opiate. That's how I look at it. In a previous episode, um, I interviewed this uh, man who I love named Dr. Stan Tacken, and he kind of was explaining to me how the brain it kind of how you can get addicted to like relational uh like the like relationships because like the brain the chemicals that the brain makes when you fall in love and it's like the endorphin oxytocin testosterone yeah. vasopressin and testosterone <laughs> and um yeah. and and like that chemical is like very addictive to people and and those chemicals get released in different amounts and different variations based off of like where you are in relationship with this person and like blah 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 but what I hear you saying is that, like, when your brain gets exposed to these opioids or opiates, whatever, like, once your brain experiences that high, there's going to be, like, that reptilian part of the brain that, like, is always going to want to experience that high in times of stress? Or Well, it's, it's not really the high. I think most addicts are not taking their drugs eventually to get high. They're just to get normal. To become normal. Yeah. yeah. I get so, that with weed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So She's basically <laughs> So so basically it's not about addiction's not about getting high anymore. It's about feeling normal. And the opiates so the opiates have changed the brain and if you go through the withdrawal part, you're gonna feel terrible. So you're taking the opiate to actually normalize your condition. And but wouldn't the same be true of like cocaine? Yeah, co- cocaine's a little different. I mean, you know, cocaine's more of a, a drug which is a stimulant. It takes people out of their, you know, um, when they're bored, they don't know what to do with themselves. Cocaine's a slightly different drug to an opiate, which is taking away the the stress of the world. It's taking away the anxiety. It's different from cocaine. And granted, I, I understand, you know, on, on a visceral level, like that the feeling of the drugs are different, but isn't addiction at the end of the day? It, it a is, common mechanism, you yes. think? That's always thought that addiction is a common mechanism. We don't. We, we think that addiction is going to be drug dependent. I mean, uh, uh, usually an addict is very, very restricted to their drug of choice, right? Um, it's very rare to have a, an addict who's uh, an opiate addict as well as a cocaine addict, right? They, they, it, it's rare. 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to have their, their drug preference. So um, I, think, I, I think it is dependent on what the drug does. I don't, I, I, I don't think, you know, addiction is going to be the same for everyone. I mean, some people, they, they, they love one drug, they, they, they aren't going to take another drug. You know, they, they aren't necessarily going to be addicted to another drug. Right. So, but the reason that the that opiates are so troubling specifically is is because they just have such a powerful, like, half-life and as as far as, like, the withdrawal and you wanting to do more of them. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more the association of what the drug does. So if if you have a drug and you associate it with this relief of, negative affect for feeling like shit if you know that drug's going to do that and there's a lot of stress in your life a lot of depression in your life which happens to be the case these days unfortunately then um opiates are going to be a very powerful association in your brain and you know and also you know like being america and like the land of the free it's like you have to be empowered to you know, make your own decisions and do what's best for you in a world where that's like full of temptations and full of like you know wanting to be like eat everything and take everything. But it does seem to me that if there was an industry that was making a product that was causing the the imminent demise of, you know, thousands and thousands of people a year in this country, like, what do we need to do to tackle this problem? Like, doesn't there need to be more legislation or oversight or like something? Because these are, I mean, I was reading this one article about, you know, how heroin was made. It was like in 1729, this like Chinese emperor like put laws on like who could who yeah, could smoke right. opium cakes because people were getting like so fucked up and he was like this is not a good look. So, you know, I'm saying if you've got morgues overflowing in Ohio, like what what do we need to do? Like what is being done to to kind of get ahead of this or turn the tide? Well, I, I, I think one of the important things is educating physicians. The, the educational program for, for physicians need to be really um, stepped up. I think there needs to be um, kind of contracts made with people taking their opiate drugs. Um, but these are kind of these are kind of breaks. They kind of breaks on the on the initiation of the drug taking. My feeling is that really we have to tackle what is the basis of addiction, which I think is more of the anxiety and the depression. But when I think about, you know, the American, the American side of that, like the, like what organization is working to lessen the depression and anxiety <laughs> in fucking America? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, pharmaceutically speaking, they're making a pill for it. Right. But, but again, these are all band-aids and again, band-aids, it's, yeah. it's making, you know, a very specific group of people extremely rich. While a lot of people are dying, yeah, you got it. Um, so, like, it, I don't see Donald Trump increasing investment in research to addictive drugs in this country. I, I don't see him making a state of emergency like he promised, or one that actually will create any effective or reasonable change. So, like, you being, you know, in the trenches of this field, like, have, or do you see anything positive, or, or is anything to make this U-turn like boomerang in a cuter direction? Well, I see that at least the um, epidemic is coming, you know, it's being advertised, it's being, it's out there. Um, And, um, you know, the uh, newspapers are full of it, the, the, you know, the the, uh, TV is full of it. So at least it's getting out to people so that they know about it. Um, Whether economically, you know, is there any incentive 
it's it's difficult to say. I mean, the the the, the epidemic's costing what, and last last year estimate was what five hundred billion a year. <laughs> I think it was five hundred billion a year. The White House uh, put out that that's what it was costing. But that's costing States. hospitals. That's hospitals. That's um, loss of loss of work. That's you know deaths. That's 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 a whole. But that five hundred billion figure has to offset however much money the pharmaceutical industry is making. Yes, and I wonder what their profits were. And that that's, and whatever that time was when they lost five hundred billion from loss of life, I wonder what the profit was <laughs> of the. You know, I mean, because it seems like I just it it seems like there's a lot of information gathering, but I don't see like anyone. And it's hard, you know, because this is like a free enterprise society and it's a free country. So you can sell what you want. People just need to take more responsibility for themselves. But it's hard when like the literal thing that is being sold takes away people's ability to take care of themselves. That's right. I mean, people do lose their they lose their damn sense, their good damn sense. Yeah, because, you know, like every addiction, it sort of takes over your whole brain, right? That's what your focus is on, is getting that drug. And And that's the problem. And this this 30-minute conversation for me really could be um, years. But on that note, you know, guys, I'm going to post a really cute picture of this podcast because not to, like, diminish this amazing scientist to his hair, but he has the prettiest hair. Like, <laughs> the hair on this man is so pretty. Um, gray, gray, gray. <laughs> I live but I live for a man with natural hair color. It's like my favorite thing. Um, so, you know, guys, I hope that uh, this this conversation uh, empowered you and educated you on some of your questions about the opioid crisis. Also, Dr. Chris Evans, where can people follow you and find you and read your research or keep up with you? Should Do you want that? Do you want people to be able to keep up with you somewhere? Is there? Yes. Do you have a Twitter? Uh, or do you have a Facebook? I don't have a Twitter. I don't know. Kathy has a Facebook. My wife has the Facebook. <laughs> Where's that thing, you guys? I met Chris's wife tonight, whose name is, or today, Kathy. whose name is Kathy. And she is this pain yep, specialist doctor. Is. And we're actually going to be having her back to do another episode on, yes, you should. on you pain should. because she is amazing. And I'm really excited to, because really pain holds the hand of the subject that we've been talking yes, about. Yes, it does. And we need to break that down. Um, so we will get her Facebook for when that happens. But do you have a Facebook? Nope. Do you, so, well, not a very good one. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Then you guys are going to have to wait with bated breath to get her. Facebook, so you no, can that's kind right, of keep up with him through, uh, through, through, through osmosis. Her, yes. uh, look at all these science words I'm spitting out. What about like a cute, what word. about like a cute little like? Uh, do you have like a website or something? Yes, I have a website, and I and uh, you know we have PubMed, which is where all of our our publications are published. So PubMed, Pub, uh, says it, it, where all of the scientific uh, research oh. is published is yeah, this yeah. place called PubMed, and that gives you the um, information which is authentic and. I love authentic information. The authentic's good. <laughs> in this day of in this day of in this day and age of fake news. Um That's right. so we will include the link to that um on this episode and whatever device you guys are listening to this episode on. And Dr. Yeah. Chris Evans, thank so you so much papers. for your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Dr. Chris Evans. You'll find links to Dr. Chris Evans' work in this episode description of whatever device you've been listening to the show on. Follow me on Instagram. I'm at JBN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks to her for letting us use it. If you've enjoyed our show, please tell your friends. Tell anyone that'll listen, in fact. Short of getting arrested or getting on the 5 o'clock news, I'd really appreciate it if you would forcibly tell someone. Maybe not in, like invade their personal space, but just really passionately let them know why they should be listening to Getting Curious. You know, I might not do bells and whistles. We might not do little segments or games. But we do get to the meat and potatoes of these subjects that you should be knowing about. Well, I don't want to shame you, so you shouldn't like be 
If you want to know about it, I'm going to talk about it. So just listen. You know what I mean? Also, I live for a glorious Apple review on Apple Podcasts. It was really, uh, I love so much. But I really appreciate you listening to Getting Curious. We'll see you next time.